Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced at the University of Minnesota, featuring conversations with prominent scholars, researchers, and other movers and shakers in the social world. In this episode, political scientist Chad Levan drops in for a talk about the power and limitations of food as a political metaphor in our globalized society. His new book, Eating Anxiety, The Perils of Food Politics, explores the intersection of our cultural obsessions with food and self-determination, as well as the sometimes troubling implications of consumer-based ethics. Chad is an associate professor at Virginia Tech, where he also holds an appointment at ASPECT, the Alliance for Social, Political, Ethical, and Cultural Thought. Chad Levan, welcome to Office Hours. Thanks for having me. So in your work on food and identity, you introduce the digestive subject as a counterpoint to the figure that social scientists call um, the liberal subject. So who are these two characters and what's their conflict all about? So this notion of a liberal subject, I take it will be largely familiar to a lot of your listeners. I take it from a series of uh, 17th century thinkers, in particular Hobbes, Locke, and Descartes, who uh, all seem to posit this figure walking through the world separated from the world. So this notion of a sovereign individual subject that stands independent from the world. And I claim that this idea of the liberal subject underlies a whole host of uh, assumptions and ideas about epistemology, about objective knowledge, about ethics, and about politics uh, that give rise to the liberal political project. And in particular, I think that this 17th century liberal subject is characterized by three primary commitments, a commitment to identity, this notion that people are the same person uh, day after day, the same person over time, despite the fact that our bodies and our ideas and our preferences change over time. Uh, they're committed to uh, a strong notion of authenticity, the notion that um, we as individuals determine who we are, we're in charge of who we are, and a commitment to uh, a, a conventional notion of responsibility, this idea that we can and should be rewarded or punished for what we do. So that's the notion of the liberal subject that I'm dealing with, this commitment to identity, authenticity, and responsibility that stems from this notion of an individual subject separated from the world. Uh, this idea of a digestive subject that I come up with, I, I draw out of three uh, 19th century thinkers, in particular Hegel, Marx, and Nietzsche, uh, each of whom I argue challenge these notions of identity, authenticity, and responsibility uh, in, in a very, what I take to be uh, amusing way, um, that is, they all do it through their use of digestive metaphors. Uh, Marx talks about commerce as social metabolism. Nietzsche talks repeatedly about digestion. He talks about memory as indigestion and inability to be through with something. Uh, and Hegel uh, quite famously talks a lot about digestion. Um, and, and it's been noted that his entire project is really digestive in its structure. His entire dialectical project is, is kind of manifesting this logic of digestion. Uh, Alexander Kozhev famously calls the Hegelian subject the subject that eats. Um, and so my idea is that um, Hegel, Marx, and Nietzsche each go to these series of digestive metaphors to characterize people in the world not as sovereign subjects going around controlling their environment, but rather as vulnerable, dependent creatures who are unable to extricate themselves from their contexts. And so the, the argument I make in the book is not, that there's not really a conflict between the liberal subject and the digestive subject, but these are two very different ways of seeing the world and two different, very different ways of understanding uh, humans' positions in the world. Uh, and I go back uh, a little bit to Ludwig Feuerbach, uh, the materialist who was an influence on Marx, uh, who writing about um, uh, books about nutrition at the time 
uh, and, and looking at the kind of digestive logic that was on display in these books about nutrition, uh, arguing that if you really pay attention to this digestive logic, you can't be committed to strong notions of individualism and private property and mastery over the, over the, the environment. And instead, you come away thinking about human beings as essentially vulnerable, essentially interdependent. Uh, and his claim is, you know, you, you become a communist, really, when you recognize that the, the barriers between ourselves and the world and our barriers between ourselves and others are, are not as, uh, as non-porous as we like to believe. So uh, you argue throughout eating anxiety that people use the visceral experience of digestion to make inferences about uh, really complex social ideas. Um, that struck me as a really provocative and useful argument. And I noticed that in making it, you cite two cognitive linguists, um, two guys by the name of George Lakoff and Mark Johnson. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what you pulled from their field and how it influenced your work? Sure. So, so John, uh, Lakoff and Johnson um, introduced this notion of what they call a structural metaphor. Uh, and they, they talk about these as specific metaphors that offer more general understandings of the broad conditions of life. So the, the, the metaphor they like to talk a lot about is this idea that argumentation is war, right? And that, that stronger arguments win. So they take the very specific notion of warfare and say it'll, we use it to structure how we understand um, intellectual rational debate. So I use this notion of a structural metaphor, and I kind of link it up with Weber's notion of electoral, uh, elective affinity and political theorist William Connolly's uh, focus on uh, what he likes to call resonance, to talk about how particular metaphors um, come to be uh, widely accepted and come to circulate so freely in society. So I talk about you know, the metaphor of a body politic how it conveys a kind of organic, interdependent uh, relationship between people, and contrast it with this other metaphor, the social contract, uh, which portrays society as a legal arrangement. That we're held together by kind of um, legal, voluntary uh, agreements instead of by uh, existential uh, commitments to one another. Um, and so, so what I'm doing with, with Lakoff and Johnson is looking at why particular metaphors uh, become so satisfying. Why did people stop talking about society as a body politic around the 17th century and start characterizing society as a legal arrangement, a social contract? And, and I've taken this approach. Um, I take it in the book, looking at those metaphors. Uh, in, in other writings, I've also looked at the emergence of, uh, of a metaphor of a factory farm, which was invented in the late 19th century, and why people uh, came to grow so comfortable discussing uh, agricultural production as industrial production. Uh, and I've also, in, in collaboration with, with a colleague named Chris Russell at Carleton University in Canada, uh, looked at um, epidemiological metaphors. Uh, why did people become so uh, satisfied with this metaphor of a tipping point at, so long, so, uh, at a certain point? Why did everybody uh, grow so comfortable describing so many social phenomena as uh, uh, as infectious diseases, as contagion, as viruses. And so I look at these metaphors as kind of symptoms of uh, broader ways that people have for understanding their position in the world. Great. So I guess it seems like the, the body is a particularly salient metaphor in political thought in your book. And um, in the introduction to Eating Anxiety, you write that the idealized liberal subject is often imagined without a particular class, race, gender, or sexuality, so kind of without a body. Yet you point out that our culture stigmatizes obesity in particular in a way that 
complicates this notion. So how would you say that liberal ideology shapes our understanding of obesity? Right. So, so yes, I do argue that this liberal subject is presumed to lack all these features and, and in its strongest iterations really presumed to lack a body. And the, the debates about obesity and diet more generally uh, do seem linked up with a kind of uh, entrepreneurial logic, right, where our body is a tool that we're supposed to master. And the, the texts I go through in the book, I try to demonstrate that the uh, debates we have in our society about obesity today are really debates about uh, responsibility, the, the degree to which people are uh, able to control one's own body, which we're presumed to be um, supposed to be able to do. Uh, and so, sure, there's a lot of uh, debates, a lot of uh, claims made in obesity debates about, say, the political economy of junk food. Uh, but, but on, but more more broadly, I think, you know, on television shows like The Biggest Loser to The Simpsons, um, this, the obese really stand as as objects of judgment, right? That that we're the in these in these programs and these narratives, I think overweight people are held up as um, um, bad consumers, as lacking in some kind of moral fiber or, you know, with Homer Simpson in particular, really just a kind of stand-in for the moral decline of a decadent society. And if you look at, say, Michelle Obama's uh, Let's Move campaign to, to combat childhood obesity, right, it's really entirely uh, uh, organized around getting people to take responsibility for their own health. Um, and if you look at uh, another popular film, uh, Supersize Me from 2004, where Morgan Spurlock famously uh, put on a bunch of weight um, to show what fast food does to people, you know, I looked at the debates around that movie when it came out, and some people loved it and some people hated it, but what everybody seemed to agree about was that this was a movie all about responsibility. This was all a movie about uh, whether we can blame corporations for our livelihoods or whether we need to take more responsibility for ourselves. And I thought that was very interesting because the word responsibility is almost completely absent from the movie. And same with its you know, rough synonyms, liability, culpability. Uh, none of these terms really play any role in the movie at all. But everybody looked at this uh, movie about uh, weight gain as essentially a movie about responsibility. And I think that plays into this this liberal ideology that says we are essentially uh, in charge of our bodies and we are kind of um, charged with the task of controlling our bodies. Mm. So uh, of course there are these like structural causes for obesity and obesity affects certain groups in America much more so than others. So uh, do you have a feel for who those groups are and how would you say that our eating anxieties um, contribute to their position in society? So it's quite popular now in the literature to note that we, we've recently passed a point in which Americans are more likely to get sick from overeating than from undereating, right? Being obese is, is a greater threat than being um, undernourished. Um, and, and that obesity used to be uh, a condition of the wealthy, right? When, you could, uh, when, when calories were scarce, getting fat was a sign of wealth. Uh, now when calories are abundant, uh, Restricting calories is supposed to be uh, the, the, the position people aspire to. And there's a lot of literature about fat discrimination, about uh, different demographic um, distributions of obesity, poor and non-white populations tending to uh, be more afflicted by obesity. But, but my 
my interest in this book is is a slightly different than that in that i'm i'm more interested in how our concern with obesity how a kind of moral panic or or kind of uh, 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 i'll just say it again yeah moral panic about obesity manifests a particular anxiety that i think americans feel uh, more broadly uh, most generally an anxiety that americans that we that you and i are uh, unable to control ourselves or that we are in some way out of control uh, in, in perhaps in a political economic sense uh, people don't feel that they have political economic power uh, but also more and this goes back to your first question in a more existential sense that that these liberal narratives about the sovereign individual have it that we are in charge of ourselves that we control who we are that we are in charge of our own fates and the fact that it's so easy to gain weight um, undercuts that narrative. There's a kind of existential anxiety that we have these bodies that are difficult to control and that the difficulty to control our own body makes it difficult to live up to the the ideal of a sovereign liberal individual. So Chad, you also write a great deal about Michael Pollan who of course has become the central figure of the local food movement and has dramatically increased awareness about food politics. You seem to see limits, though, on the potential for his agenda to create real social change. Why is that? So, so I have a lot of uh, fun, I have very critical things to say about Michael Pollan in the book, but I have a lot of uh, appreciation for his work. And, I, and my work, this book really stems from, if I had to trace it to one thing, it's an essay he wrote in the New York Times in 2002 where he followed a cow through its life cycle that I thought was just fascinating. Uh, Twelve years later or so, having uh, spent some time with his writing, my, my summary uh, position on Michael Pollan is that I think he's really good at helping us think about food, but not particularly good at helping us think about politics. And, you know, Michael Pollan has received a lot of criticism for perhaps uh, selling us a consumerist politics, uh, characterizing shopping and eating differently as a solution to problems like global warming and obesity. Um, that he, you know, really wants the market to do a lot of the work necessary to change our food system. Uh, and he's stepped back from that a little bit um, since the criticism, right? I mean, the, the famous, his famous formulation, vote with your fork, he, he's kind of, he's kind of um, complicated a little bit by saying, sure, vote with your folk, for, vote with your fork, but you also need to vote with your vote as well, is how he likes to put it now. Um, but, but more broadly, I really just do see a real distaste for conventional politics in, in Michael Pollan's work um, and, and other people like Michael Pollan. Barbara Kingsolver uh, wrote a book about food politics around the same, or, or, or about food, I should say, at the same time Michael Pollan's The Omnivore's Dilemma came out. And, and she, she portrays a similar kind of distaste for politics. I mean, in, in Kingsolver's story, she spends a year raising her own food. I think it's no accident that that book really begins literally by leaving a city, right? She's, the experiment literally believe, uh, begins by retreating onto her own private land to take care of herself. And uh, when I was writing the book, Michael Pollan uh, wrote a, a very curious essay in the New York Times uh, reflecting on the Al Gore film, An Inconvenient Truth, saying that uh, the 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 essay opens by saying he'd watched this this movie from Al Gore that just terrified him and wanted to know what to do and then the movie ends with well you should ride a bike to work and he he, he says that the kind of uh, radical disconnect between the severity of the problem and the, and the uh, 
minute level solutions that Gore offered was, was disorienting to him. And he said, you know, maybe Gore can't uh, imagine more collective solutions to this, these kinds of problems. And I thought that seems about right. And then I go on to read the rest of Michael Pollan's essay. And he, one of the primary things he recommends in that essay is that people grow some of their own food. And I thought, this is, this is curiously disjointed, right? That he's, he has this idea that Gore, Al Gore, can't imagine political responses to the problem. And in response, he says, go to your backyard and grow an orange. Um, and so, again, I take that to be emblematic that, that Michael Pollan is, again, very good at thinking about food, but perhaps not very good at thinking about politics. Hmm. Right. So um, I'm wondering how you see this, um, I guess, consumer-based message in today's food politics playing out in specific life circumstances, especially for farmers and maybe farm workers on the one hand, and on the other hand, maybe working-class shoppers for whom mm -hmm. this food-based ethical system might be less attainable? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So, right, when you say farmers and farm workers, right, there's a, there's a real slippage there that that's, I think is endemic to the literature. When Michael Pollan wants to talk about the work that's done on farms, he largely talks about farmers, people that own land, people that, uh, you know, he conveys this kind of aesthetic picture of sovereign landholders earning their title to the land through labor. Uh, Julie Guthman, in, in her work on, on food politics, has, has demonstrated how these how terms like family farm, organic farm, you know, kind of convey this uh, idyllic notion of what's happening on farms, even though, as you say, it's not really farmers so much as agricultural workers that are doing uh, the work on these, um, on, on these farms. And so I think there's a, there's a, a really important slippage there with allowing people to use terms like farmers uh, that kind of conveys a, a nostalgic image that doesn't accurately reflect what's going on. So, so I think part of what's going on, how this discourse plays out in, as you say, specific life circumstances, uh, you know, that in, in people like Michael Pollan, as, as other people have noted, uh, there's a way in which a kind of shopping responsibly takes on an air of benevolence, right? If you go and buy your peppers from the uh, the farmer at the farmer's market, you're you're helping out the farmer and you're doing a good deed uh, and you're being righteous, right? Carlo Petrini, the founder of, of uh, Slow Food in Italy, he's 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 indicted this discourse for this kind of allowing shopping to 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 take on the air of kind of charity. But more so, I'm, I'm, I wonder how this discourse doesn't just take on the air of benevolence, but it takes on the air of political engagement, right? When, when Michael Pollan talks about shopping responsibly, he really does do it in the terms of political action, like shopping is, as he calls it, the start of a revolution. Uh, and, and so that's one way in which uh, I have concerns about how these discourses play out. They, they allow uh, consumer action to kind of paper over what I take to me to be uh, discrete uh, realms of citizenship and political action that I think um, deserve their own vocabulary and deserve not to be um, folded into the vocabulary of consumerism. You conclude that Americans must confront our eating anxieties. Uh, pragmatically, how might that look? That's a that's an excellent question, and you know that's. That's how I conclude, and so I'm not sure uh, <laughs> how much further I was prepared to go with that. But, 
but but thinking broadly, you know, in the book, the primary anxiety I identify that is kind of encompassed by this eating anxiety uh, is um, an anxiety about uh, maintaining an integrity of the line that separates the self from the world, right? And so there's a lot of kind of soft empirical work about how people experience this um, vulnerability, right? That in uh, kind of the soft empirical work is, you know, asking uh, scientists have asked Americans, uh, what's the first thing you think about when you think about food? And, and we hear things about like guilt and, and indulgence. And then in, in other cultures with perhaps a greater commitment to social justice, people ask, uh, what do you think about when you think about food? And people talk about joy and taste and pleasure, right? And so I, I use Nietzsche to help me make this argument about a kind of resentment about individual vulnerability, that there's a kind of anxiety that Americans feel when they experience the vulnerability to the natural world in the physical act of eating. And so in this sense, our eating anxiety, the eating is, is really a kind of metaphor for how we um, experience our own limits. Uh, and so in the conclusion of the, of the book, I take up this notion of uh, disgust, a, a, very distinctive, a very distinctive emotion um, that, that, that stems from a kind of encountering of an otherness that might disrupt ourselves, right? And I go through, there's a, there's a very fascinating literature on the psychology of disgust I go through at the end of the book. And, and, and I talk about this kind of, uh, again, this, this disgust as a visceral reaction to the disruption of the sovereign self. Um, so, so confronting our eating anxiety, as I put it at the end of the book, um, broadly would entail a kind of less defensive posture in the world, uh, uh, a um, willingness to encounter otherness, a willingness to uh, be vulnerable, a willingness to um, encounter people and ideas that disrupt who we think we are. Uh, and in this sense, I take that to be a, a, you know, a nice little metaphor for democracy. Right, a, a willingness to go out into the world, encounter different kinds of things, and allow those different kinds of things to reshape who we are, um, rather than going out in the world trying not to be influenced, trying not to be infected or permeated, uh, in order to maintain a, a consistent air of self. Well, Chad, I have to admit this is a very insightful take on a subject that is near and dear to my own interests and the interests of a growing number of students really across the social science spectrum. But even so, food studies remains a really loose subfield, I think, mainly because it covers so much interdisciplinary ground. Um, do you have any advice for upcoming students looking to do research on social issues in the food system? Um, sure, yeah, I guess I, guess I would have... Uh one piece of advice, maybe it's two, um, in going through a lot of um, food literature over the past few years while writing this book, I identified two kind of traps that I think people often fall into that I would, I would advise people to be on guard against and, and try to avoid. Uh, the first trap is I, I find a lot of food literature gets, gets awfully local. Uh, pick a particular issue or a particular food or a particular meal or a particular food practice and just argue um, that it matters. Uh, you know, the, the, the tamale is important, that sort of, that sort of literature. And, and 
you know, when Foucault wrote his book about prisons, he didn't write a book about prisons because he really cared about prisons. I think, I think he did care about prison reform, but really he wrote a book about prisons because he thought prisons revealed something bigger about the world, right? Mm. Prisons were a useful inroad to talking about power. And so that's, you know, to, to take the tamale example again, it's one thing to argue that the tamale is important in some sense, but, but I would avoid the trap of just assuming it's important or just leaving it at that and saying it is important without using the tamale to talk about a bigger issue. Um, and then the second trap, I guess, is what I in some of my writings have, have called the, the trap of revelatory critique, uh, the kind of assumption that um, if you reveal something, it will change something. Um, and one of the, the primary culprits of this kind of critique I've talked about in my writing is, is someone like Peter Singer, right, who has been writing about the meat industry for 40 years, um, very persuasively in many ways. Um, but a lot of his work seems predicated on the idea that if people knew where their meat come, came from, they would stop eating it. Um, 40 years after he wrote Animal Liberation, um, it seems like a difficult claim to maintain, right? I don't think that just revealing something changes how things happen in the world. Um, so those would be the two traps, getting too local and presuming too much efficacy of revelation. Chad Levan, his new book is Eating Anxiety, The Perils of Food Politics. Chad, thanks so much for stopping by Office Hours. Thanks for having me.